The following is a member of the Growler Media Podcast Network. Find out more at growlermedia.com. Comey Snake. Welcome back to Escape from New York Minute, where we celebrate and analyze the dystopian classic one minute at a time. I'm Eric Deutsch. And I'm Molly Balin. And joining us this week is the co-host of one of my personal favorite podcasts, Spider-Man Minute. He is also an actor, but quite possibly most awesomely, he is a professional cosplayer as Spider-Man. Please welcome (laughs) Zach Luna. Hey, everyone. (laughs) Thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. Yes, Spidey himself enters Manhattan prison. <laughs> a mashup, a mashup. Much obliged. Yeah, so what are we tackling today? A, uh, another minute of this film, I, I presume? Uh, yeah, yeah, it's the movie by minute. <laughs> oh. Where you, do, you go through one minute at a time. I know some people find that a strange concept, but yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm well versed in it at this point, yes. I guess. <laughs> Uh, we're in minute 73. It starts with Slag soaking up the adoration of his fans, and it ends with the Duke speechifying to his crowd. Uh, and I love the the first thing I wanted to call out in this minute here is as Slag looks up at uh, the Duke, and the Duke starts, he turns around and he gives this look to Snake, just this smile as his arms come down, just like, you know, <laughs> you know you're in this ring with me. <laughs> And they cut to Snake, and Snake is just so incredibly unintimidated and unimpressed. He could give a crap that Ox <laughs> is twice his size and has this evil sneer. Yeah, he's just like, I, I can't believe I have to deal with this, too. It's sort of <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, my day was going okay, and then much worse, and then much, much worse. And now there's a monster I gotta fight. Okay, all right. <laughs> I was I was actually thinking as I was uh, getting um, notes ready for today's minute. That there's sort of a, a bit of a parallel to one of the first uh, films that we covered over on my podcast because we're um, in the midst of doing the Raimi Spider-Man films right now, and this feels it feels like there's echoes of this bit from Escape from New York in the first Sam Raimi film when Spidey's got to go up against Bonesaw McGraw yep. in the you know cage match or whatever i was just mm. like okay all right this feels <laughs> this feels familiar and, and both scary. played by people who were wrestlers also in real life so ah that makes sense yeah i was gonna ask about that because i was like this guy is like way too big and like r- like real like r- a real scary guy for to, to just feel like a uh, somebody from central casting or something <laughs> <laughs> yeah his name is ox baker of course beautiful yes, yes good <laughs> Oh, that's fabulous. Yeah. I just, one of the thoughts I had for this minute was um, a feeling that I have throughout the whole film, but uh, the the minutes I'm on are more like interior stuff, but this this space is still a a good uh, indicator of this. It just speaks to the amazement I have of the environments and locations that they were able to get for this movie at such a shoestring budget. I mean, this, I looked it up. I'm sure you guys have covered this before, how they're, you know, sort of doing this for basically no money, $6 million in 1980-whatever. But the, the, like, amount of production value on screen is absolutely astonishing. I don't know how they pulled this off, but, like, this space itself, this is not, like, 
a soundstage or a back lot, everything throughout the whole movie feels like a real place, uh, an actual apocalypse happening somehow. Um, I, I honestly, this was my first time watching the film, preparing for the podcast, so I was kind of just blown away the whole time by like, wow, wow, they're really, <laughs> they're really going for it. And whatever the space is, it's some real building of some kind that has uh, history and uh, and uh, presence that's been, you know, it's got the gross sheen of the apocalypse all over it, and that's very fun. <laughs> <laughs> do you guys know where this is like in real life or am yeah. i making all this stuff no, yeah yeah this this was uh um east st louis's misfortune was this production's fortune there had been a a, a horrible fire and, and the city was very run down and the location manager found this rundown city with this burned out area and they were like "Ooh, look at this we can film our whole movie here so this specific scene is in an old uh train station wow so, oh, so it's like, God, that makes so much more sense than I, I would like my brain was like they had to like reconfigure and build. But how could they have done that for the amount of money they had? Right. Yeah, just the idea that there were like multiple city blocks of like terrifying looking areas that they could. I mean, some of the shots in this this film, you're like looking down multiple city streets and it's all dressed like the end of the world. Really mm-hmm. crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And it and it helps with this like I mean I know this isn't a uh, a gladiator arena or like um, you know uh, there's no <laughs> giant mechanical cage coming down from the ceiling but it's still a, a very big real space bigger than you could build inside a soundstage and it has that that like echoey sound when all the people are cheering um, it, it's the the texture of the movie is very um, authentic in a way that I don't know you could pull off today if you had a uh, comparable budget or even like three times as much money it still would be hard to get this amount of uh uh, you know bang for your buck on screen yeah i wonder aside from building the ring and bringing in maybe the the risers that all the uh, extras are standing on i wonder how much set dressing they really even had to do you know the room might have naturally looked like this at this point and they didn't really have to do much yeah yeah it seems like you know get in all your extras and fill it with smoke and uh go nuts it's gonna look it's gonna look terrifying (laughs) (laughs) i i in in speaking to like the the people uh you know in the background in the foreground doing all their their shenanigans we don't get like a good look at many of the people outside of like duke's royal balcony here but i do want to shout out there's some guy in the foreground uh around like 10 seconds in and they returned the shot a few times and you can see like the entirety of the ring uh with the like flaming post and everything, there's a guy in the foreground who's just literally shaking a stick. Like he's so. <laughs> <laughs> I love stick man. Oh man, I, that is so charming. That is so beautiful. I don't know how that happens, but I love it. It's <laughs> just <laughs> having a blast. And he's wearing like a Darth Vader helmet or something too. Yeah, what is yeah. that? <laughs> like. I, I do have a little, again, because I, I just watched the movie for the first time uh, in prepping for the podcast today. I don't 100% understand, like, the, the lore behind the uh, this situation here. Like, it's, um uh, you know, that it has become this big, you know, prison scape land that all of Manhattan is the one giant prison. That makes sense to me. But I, I wonder, like... How much stuff, how much infrastructure from the old Manhattan was still there? What did people bring in? Like, what did the prisoners have access to? So, like, like Stickman here, where does this helmet come from? What, 
whose helmet was this beforehand? How does it, I don't know. It just like, it raises more questions than it answers, I suppose, which is always kind of fun. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. We've talked a little bit about that and, and just being kind of curious about at one point, did people just vacate the city or evac'd and mm-hmm. how much clothing or usable items were really left? I think, you know, obviously things like guns uh, were probably taken out. Mm-hmm. Or if they were around, whatever, you know, bullets, whatnot, have been used up long ago. So yeah. I think that's why Stickman is especially charming in that you see, obviously, people have, you know, gathered bats or, you know, there was a billy club in a previous minute. So this guy just took a big, heavy stick with him, <laughs> you know, like that was the limit of what he was able to scrounge up for this event. And, you yeah. know, it works. And I appreciate that. But, yeah, it's kind of like a golden retriever picked up a stick and brought it to the event so yeah yeah Yeah. there's there's a mix of stuff laying around in in the assembly speaking of interesting individuals there's a a gentleman in the far right and i apologize i can't remember if we called this out in a previous minute but he's just wearing a giant round coke sign on his back kind of like captain america (laughs) oh my god i've never seen that before i see it now what the hell that is incredible (laughs) wow it's like twelve yeah. seconds in. He's got an old school Coca Cola. You're right. It's like the it's it's bigger than Captain America's shield. <laughs> yeah, and it's just it, it's part of their attire. Yeah, part of the the armor or whatever that he's that he's scrounged up uh, for the world. I just imagine, you know, was there some like guy who ran a curio shop uh, in some part of Manhattan that was like, I ain't moving and uh, like, <laughs> has been providing like old World War Two memorabilia and like weird uh, eccentric antiques that people are like, yeah, this is going to go great with my Burning Man outfit now. You <laughs> 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 were just rolling in whatever they use for money at this point. Um, I mean, because they've established with Cabby at least that some of the people in this you know this new world on manhattan aren't or weren't specifically brought there as part of the uh, the big prison experiment like he was just i've been a cabbie here for forever so who else what other people were in this environment that like figured that was a good enough bet for them that like yeah i'll just stay i'm, I'm sure <laughs> i'm sure i'll find a way in this hellscape it'll be fun <laughs> yeah there have to have been people that were like you know what I'm a New Yorker. I'm not leaving. I don't care that it's turned into a prison. I'm staying. There, there's no way every single person evacuated Manhattan when they closed it off. Yeah, it'd be impossible to like actually check, especially in, I mean, the movie, at this point, we're in the far distant future of 1997 or something, but yes. like the, uh, <laughs> the the protocol went into force years prior, right? Like it was uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, sometime in the 80s or something. So there's yeah. been like 20 years of shenanigans happening here. Um yeah, I don't know. The, the the weird, like, homespun version of this, like, pressure cooker society they've made is is very intriguing to me in a, uh, you know, American Mad Max fashion, I guess. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> just, like, I just, I went back to that shot you mentioned already, Eric, where he's just, like, he doesn't care. He just doesn't care. <laughs> <laughs> he's too cool. I love it. <laughs> that hair and everything, man. 
Speaking and, of too cool, yeah. oh, I'm sorry, Eric. Did you have a? No, no. What's too cool? Yeah, uh, and we start this minute with these couple of guys like kind of hanging off with their legs dangling off the balcony, and I just love them because this is such a Portland thing. Not necessarily they hang off of a balcony, but they just don't give a shit. They have this really like unaffected stare. They're like, mm, yeah, like this happens like every day. They're like, whatever. Yeah, they're just such a scenester approach to this whole scene. I just love it. There's sort of a Portland vibe here. Uh, full disclosure, I've only been to Portland once. Um, I was in college and I was taking a uh, a performance art class and we went to Portland for one weekend for a time-based arts festival. Yes. Which, yeah. It's like an umbrella term for like music and theater and dance and whatnot. You know, art that happens uh, like across time. Like it's not a static object you're looking at. Anyway, it was very sceny and like hip and all that shenanigans. And I have this like, this very strong memory of this venue we went to one night to see a bunch of these uh, like dance performances. And it was like a hollowed out old um, like high school that they had converted in this performance space. And this, this feeling was there where it was like, yeah, I mean this, this was a place that was like ordered and whatever, and we're creating something like new in it. And also the old rules don't apply anymore. So there was in like the, auditorium where i'm sure the kids put on plays and stuff back when it was a high school there were like extra shelves and balconies and stuff and you could just like look around and there'd be like people in crazy outfits perched in the corner just staring <laughs> down at you. i was like okay all right this is this is new this is i dig it i don't know i was like 20 i was having a blast it was uh, a, a good a good environment to go to in your college days to go see the time-based arts festival in portland that's a very Portland story all the way around from age to coming up here for that. That just seems super proper. Yeah, you got you got a very authentic introduction to the city. I'm, I'm very glad. proud. <laughs> uh, this is a fairly authentic introduction to this type of city, I suppose. Uh, I, I wonder who all the like who the people attending this event are like. Yeah, we um. Uh, this came up in uh, last week's minutes in the script. We don't, you don't get it just oh. from watching the movie, but okay, in the, yeah. the script, it basically says people from every gang in the prison have assembled to watch the matches tonight. Oh. So it's, it's sort of like the opening scene in The Warriors where they've got every gang they're represented. Gotcha, gotcha. So maybe there's a, there's a parallel franchise here that's just Mortal Kombat in the you know, the New York <laughs> penitentiary. Whatever yeah, you call exactly. <laughs> this is the big bout. So he just gets like a buy into the last round then? Like he doesn't have to engage in the rest of the tournament? I mean, well, okay. I'm putting we him on did, display. <laughs> I mean, we did see, and a, a couple of minutes ago, we did see a snake was being brought into the arena, saw a dead guy being carried out on a stretcher. As oh. in. So we oh. think that was Slag's previous opponent. That makes sense. Again, that's echoed quite directly in the first Sam Raimi Spider-Man film, where as Peter is going in to face down Bone McGraw, there's a colored character taken out on a stretcher who's yelling, my legs! Oh, I can't feel my legs! <laughs> presumably whatever Bonesaw did to him. I, um, I, I would not um, be surprised if this is, if both of those like elements in that film are direct, um, you know, allusions to this specifically this scene in this movie i uh i know that um one of the reasons sam raimi got involved in feature filmmaking i mean he was always interested in filmmaking but one of the reasons he started getting into doing horror and stuff like that was john carpenter's um halloween 
was hmm. like, he had like a producer oh, okay. took him out to go see Halloween because he had been doing these like um, smaller like film projects that he and his friends were screening and uh, and they were like either comedic or weird or like sort of dramatic things and uh, a producer somebody was talking to him about like uh, maybe doing horror and Sam Raimi hadn't done any horror before that he's like could you do that and he's like well, I don't know he's like well there's this horror movie everybody's going crazy for you should just go see it because it's making a lot of money and they went and they watched the original Halloween that John Carpenter did and Sam Raimi was like well I can't make that but <laughs> I think I could make a cheap horror film. Sure. Let's, let's see where, where we go from there. And then, mm. you know, things spun out from there. So I, I know that he Carpenter was a big influence on him. And may, maybe that's what all of the uh, three minutes of playtime shenanigans in the first Sam Raimi Spider-Man are about. It's, it's all, it all comes back to slag. <laughs> interesting. Oh, that is interesting. Possibly. I don't know. It's a theory, but I think... Yeah. Yeah, I think if it, it, there's there's enough evidence here, perhaps. And now in your one weekend in Portland and Molly in your uh, life in Portland, has anyone ever worn a dog a dog collar like Slag is wearing? Oh yeah, because <laughs> <laughs> the dude's got a dog collar on for some reason. <laughs> well, you know, it's uh, to accent the cool beard he's got and whatnot. <laughs> you know, it's, it just helps. A little, a little bit of intrigue uh, in, the <laughs> in your outfit can't hurt. Yeah. <laughs> wow, I hadn't noticed that before. I mean, I could see that there was something on from the back, but yeah, now that I can see the front of it, yeah, that's he's got a, a Rottweiler jewelry situation going on. So when he's not like prize fighting in this uh, gladiatorial arena here. Did, it, does, is Slag like on a leash somewhere, like guarding? <laughs> I mean, I, why else do you wear a dog? I mean, unless it is just <laughs> accessorizing, and we 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 we've talked a lot about the weird accessorizing in this movie, so maybe he is just accessorizing, or yeah, maybe the Duke keeps him chained up like the Gimp or something like that. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Anything could happen at this point. It's a uh, a world that exists beyond the edges of the frame. And that we don't have full uh, understanding of, which I think yeah. is uh, a positive for the film. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, we Molly and I have really gotten into the whole lack of information and lack of explanation of things in the movie. That's something that I, I never really fully was aware of till we started doing this minute by minute. And mm-hmm. I, I, there are movies where it, it, it doesn't necessarily work. You can see a movie where they don't do it. And you can be like, God damn it. They really held back. I don't know what the hell's going on. It mm-hmm. really works in this movie just not knowing a lot of the backstory of stuff. Yeah, it's like they they choose their battles wisely. Like, mm-hmm. we we are very clear about, like, how the objectives change and, like, what's the next thing. I think I read somewhere that Kurt Russell was talking about his vision of Snake Plissken was just a guy who is only ever caring about the next 60 seconds of his right. life. Mm-hmm. And and I was like, the, the movie kind of feeds into that in that, okay, maybe I don't have a grasp on all the crazy stuff that's happening. This like person ran by in the background, they're leading off to some other weird story I don't know about. I'm in this new weird environment, but I know what I'm doing right now and what my next goal is. And that's always clear the whole way through. So you don't feel lost, but you do feel like excited about the the things around the corner that you don't get to see um and that's probably hard to do um i've sure seen a lot of movies that go too hard in the other direction and like explain everything right to and like kill all the magic and i'm like okay well 
It's cooler before you told me. <laughs> right. right. Uh, speaking of uh, people telling us stuff, uh, we get some like speechifying from the Duke. Yeah, the Duke. Yeah. Uh, everyone's being loud because they're they're in a frenzy here as they're waiting to see Slag kill another person, and the Duke just raises his arms. And I gotta say. I want that kind of respect- respectability in my life. Just hold your hands out and immediately <laughs> shuts up. How do, totally. how, do I get, how do I get that respect like that? I don't know. you got to be as charismatic as Isaac Hayes, I guess. <laughs> he is, he's selling it. Everybody's yeah, like... And so here's the thing. He uh-huh. had an album in 1971 called Black Moses. Oh, wow. My mom had this album. So I, I remember this album from my childhood. It had a, a fold-out album cover. You could actually fold it out. And it, it was him standing in a very similar position to the one here when he holds his arms out. Oh, oh my gosh. Yeah, it, like parting the Red Sea, basically. Yes, absolutely. And, and, mm. and he even then in his speech, he starts talking about how tomorrow they'll be on their way to freedom, like Moses would have <laughs> talked about. I mean, it's, it's really, I, I wonder if this was done on purpose because he had this album from 10 years before and he got that nickname a record executive gave him that nickname and this is yeah. you know talk about one of these strange like how you get a nickname the record executive said that he called them black moses because hayes's music had the effect on black audiences the same effect that moses had on jews back oh, wow Whoa. That's why he called him Black Moses, and which which Isaac Hayes actually didn't like at first, and eventually he embraced the nickname. And so yeah. it's just it's weird that you know I remember this album, and then here he is in, in practically the same pose talking about freedom. Yeah, I mean, I had no idea about any of that, but I definitely felt the the power of meaning behind what's going on here. Again, even if I don't have access to all of it in the moment. These these uh, the big moments in the film feel like they have. Um, uh, history or meaning or import that goes beyond just what we have access to, and it wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me if that was like a conversation he had with Carpenter about um, how to stage this and uh, how to shoot it and what sort of energy he wants to come across. And uh, I think it works great in the in the in the moment. Like I am I'm enraptured when he starts to talk. Yeah, it's his version of Evita. I mean, even the way that yeah. this is <laughs> you know shot. There's that kind of hero shot that's shot slightly underneath here mm-hmm. instead mm-hmm. of being straight on and just on him that you have a little bit of context when we start out yeah of the people around him which is kind of interesting to me yeah he's, he's sort of framed not just by the people but also the the architecture and where he physically is yeah and even in that small one where he's got like the uh you know that that, that frame with the columns on either side of him like this is a cathedral or something um I don't know. It's it's really cool, um, mm-hmm. or temple, I guess should should say. I don't know, um, but the it all feels um, it all feels meaningful. I guess is what I, what I keep coming back to. That this is a this is a movie that it was like sort of made kind kind of you know scrappy in terms of what they had access to and what what how much money they had and how they could put it all together. And it's you know a big genre premise and you know guys with eye patches and guns on gliders and stuff like that. But it still feels. Uh, 
like they tried as much as they could to inject it with meaning. And I think that's probably why it has been so influential. Yeah. So you've mentioned a couple of times that you had never watched this movie before. You watched it specifically to come on our show. What's mm-hmm. uh, even outside of just this minute as a whole? What, what's uh, what's your first impression of, of the whole movie? I, I like it. I mean, that's if that's like a silly way to, to phrase it, I'm like, oh, yeah, this movie that everybody references all the time. Oh, I guess it's good. Um, but beyond <laughs> that, I um, I just found it kind of uh, charming. Uh how I could like I could feel the um, the energy involved in trying to put something with an idea this big without um, all of the resources that you might um, think you need to pull it off, and then somehow that becomes something much more interesting. I, I can see in my mind like a version of this movie made today where they have this big premise, um, this this sort of weird, strange, high concept sci-fi film. Uh, futuristic action movie and how it's just we're we're going to throw a lot of CGI at it and over design everything and you'll watch it and you know you'll have fun or whatever but it won't it won't like make that much of a lasting impression on you <laughs> sorry my dog is, uh, <laughs> your dog does l- not agree lasting impression on her sorry <laughs> um but whereas this this version of it um it it felt so much more like a like like dangerous or or exciting or um, this is a movie where I can I would totally understand somebody watching this and being it, excited to make f- films or uh, oh I didn't know you could do that sort of thing in a movie and uh, you know that it has sure it has all of the like uh, superficial hallmarks of just like a a silly action movie or something like that with the the guns and the violence and the cars and the you know crazy ideas of stuff and you know a lot of attractive people in it like that all the surface stuff is there if you just want to be indulgent about it but carpenter made sure that it it still felt like it had um punch and meaning before it i don't know what like the uh political impulse behind this was at the time when he wrote it versus when he shot it or or filmed it or whatnot but this is a a movie that feels like it is trying to mean something not just be entertaining and yeah, I think, he, uh, yeah he wrote it it was like written with watergate in mind okay all right yeah uh, that makes sense <laughs> i guess um i mean i those are conversations i guess that that would be better held near the end of the film but um yeah the, the thing i just kept thinking while i was watching it was i can see how this inspired people uh how, how this like w- would really get you excited about the possibilities of movie making and uh and trying to do more with it. I'm, I'm, I'm excited enough by it that I'm definitely going to show it to more friends of, of mine. And I'm definitely going to go watch the second one now. Because I, I hear that was oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a unique thing. Uh, and I want to I be able to compare and contrast. Okay, if you want to watch the second one as a compare and contrast, sure, go ahead. But mm-hmm. don't, don't expect the same movie experience. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, yeah, I mean, and it's not as if I hadn't seen... Any of Carpenter's stuff, I, like I'd seen uh, The Thing and Halloween and uh, They Live, which is a fantastic movie. Um, I'd seen those before, but I hadn't gotten around to digging into um, his whole filmography. So this was a nice excuse to, oh, I've been meaning to watch more of Carpenter's stuff. Uh, yeah, let's let's throw this one on and see how it affects me. And um, I don't know, I'll probably have more interesting things to say about this a week from now or two weeks from now or like a month later when it's been churning around in my brain and uh, and I, I look at it from different angles. And uh, I think that's a good mark of the film if you want to keep thinking about it. So I like to ask our guests sometimes, I like to pull their shows into uh, possible scenarios where our shows would meld with them. 
Okay. <laughs> so take all the villains in the Sam Raimi Spider-Man trilogy. Who do you think would fare the best if they ended up in Manhattan Prison, and who would fare the worst if they ended up in Manhattan Prison? Oh, wow. And this is restricted to just the, the villains? Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. For, for Because I, I, got, I got other questions for you later on in the week. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Oh, my gosh. I think I think Eddie Brock, if he didn't have the uh, the Venom symbiote, would probably fare the worst. <laughs> <laughs> Can't argue with that one. I think I think you'd be in big trouble. This is not this is not an environment where uh, the guy with the nice and easy frosted tips and uh, <laughs> you know talking his way out of. Th- I don't I don't think this is uh, this is his uh, his environment. <laughs> um, and um, as it would fare the best. I think maybe uh, maybe Otto Octavius would fare mm. the best in here. Which um, maybe that's not the immediate thing. Is like you know maybe a big burly guy like Sandman or something, or um, somebody with physical uh, might or whatnot. But um, the the thing I thought a lot about this film as I was watching it was the the way it created this little society and the the different pockets of it. That you had people like Harry Dean Stanton as the brain who had uh, carved out a useful niche in this environment where he was um, he was respected to a certain degree, not because he was a big, scary guy like the rest of them, but because he had this, you know, this, this brain, this brain of his that could, um, that, that was useful in terms of planning and figuring things out and mapping areas and whatnot, that that's a, a useful skill. And I think, I think Otto Octavius is a bit more, um, a f- you know, feet on the ground, get your hands dirty type of uh, thinking guy, uh, more so than like a Norman Osborn who's uh, I don't know <laughs> he's a rich guy who's kind of like at at arm's length from this stuff whereas you know Otto is a tinkerer and he uh and he could he would find ways to be resourceful and uh and come out on top I don't know if he would be the D- Duke of New York or something but I think he would definitely be the leader of his own gang uh, a few years into this big experiment that's I'll put I'll put my money on Otto Octavius that makes sense. Although, of course, Norman is something of a scientist himself. <laughs> <laughs> well said. Well said. <laughs> well, I have a question for you, Zach. So since uh, vehicles play quite prominently here, and the Duke has quite an excellent vehicle at that, I am curious that if you were Duke of New York, what kind of a vehicle would you end up having? <laughs> oh, boy. If I was Duke of New York, what kind of vehicle would I end up having? I, I think I would want... To like have other people doing the driving because I, I mean I, I do I do live in Los Angeles I drive every day I drive an awful lot uh, but it's not like a a singular passion of mine I'm not a person that knows a lot about like cars and engines and whatnot um, but I think a lot about one of, one of my favorite movies is uh, a film called Tremors <laughs> oh nice uh, oh absolutely, love Tremors absolutely adore that movie and when I was a kid the idea of the um, uh, this sort of haphazard vehicle to make at the end where they have a, um, uh, the cat, it's like a, uh, um, a bulldozer type vehicle that they, um, hook up to an old semi tractor trailer with like flat wheels, but it doesn't matter because the cat can pull anything. Uh, this idea of like cobbling together a big vehicle out of smaller vehicles, like you're playing with toys or something was very appealing to me. And I think part of the appeal of the film itself is that sort of, uh, childlike indulgent glee of like well what if there were no rules what could you do much like Stickman, who's like you know a kid <laughs> picking up a stick and waving it around that sort of enthusiasm that exists there so for me i like the idea of having like a um a big scary tank like thing at the front 
and then a um, an empty trailer at the back that you could like uh, pimp out as a, mm. as a party palace of some kind. I mean, in Tremors, in Tremors, <laughs> it's just they just hang out there. You know, it's just all of them scared in the back. But I, I think it would be cool to have your like your lounge back there, and then in the front you've got all of your scary stuff. I don't know. <laughs> scary in the front party in the back I there like we go it. that's it <laughs> we'll call it the mulletron or something oh that's amazing <laughs> good answer thank you so much <laughs> all right zach can you let everybody know where they can find you out in the interwebs sure if you want to find me out on the interwebs as uh, eric already mentioned i host the spider-man minute podcast uh, you can find that at spidermanminute.com or spider-man minute on whatever your favorite podcaster thing of choice is and on on the internets like uh twitter and instagram and whatnot i'm at zachary j luna that's zachary with an h in the middle j with a j and luna like the moon yeah that's it yay (laughs) (laughs) Yay. wonderful thank you no luna's lovely that's awesome uh so you can follow us on twitter at ny minute pod also we have a sweet facebook group brains library the escape from new york minute hangout And with that, be on time, stay out of the sewers, and we'll meet you on the other side of the wall.